0: Well, Jesus entered the world just like this, and he came and he said, "I came to you, and I am preaching to you the gospel of the kingdom of heaven." In fact, as we're looking at this series on the, on the parables, the main theme that we are that we'll be looking at in regards to the to the parables is the theme of the kingdom of God. It says that he went from village to village, preaching the good news of the kingdom the kingdom. And it is this news, in this text, that says that he came to preach about a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It is Jesus' preaching on the kingdom of heaven that should shape our view of the world's. How do we live in a broken world there where there is so much bad seed, where there is so much evil? Well, Jesus is teaching us on how we live in God's kingdom and also live in this world. But teaching us about his kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at for the next number of weeks. Almost all of these parables for the next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to be going. And I'm going to teach you, I'm going to tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Or the kingdom of God is like this. And he's going to give us an image, a parable, a story. So how do we live in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of this world that is so broken? What Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of heaven tells us three things in this text. Three things about his kingdom, and about how we should view the world. First, it tells us this, that we should live in this world with hope, with great hope, with expectancy, we might say. And in this, we have to answer the question simply, what is the kingdom of God? Because even though it is the main topic of Jesus' teaching, most Christians have never actually heard anybody actually teach about the kingdom of God. Most Christians don't have the vaguest notion of what it is. All we think about a kingdom is about somebody on with a crown sitting on a throne somewhere. We don't understand why it is that Jesus is always talking about this kingdom thing. We got to see it in the context of the first hearers of this parable. See, the first hearers of this parable were a people who were longing for a kingdom, for a good kingdom. Now they were under a kingdom, an oppressive kingdom called Rome. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of Israel had longed for a Messiah, one who would come and deliver them from under Rome's yoke, someone who would come and be their king to unleash the tyranny of Rome. And th- there was many people who came and claimed to be just that. In the previous three to 400 years of Israel's history, before Jesus shows up, there was all of these various people who would rise up and revolt against the Roman Empire, and they would try to win freedom for the people of Israel, and they all failed, and then Jesus shows up and sounds eerily similar. He comes and says, I am the king. I am the Messiah, the longed-for-one. I am the emissary from God. I have come to bring God's royal authority to transform this world. And he says, and everywhere he just went, he did these miracles and people are going, are getting excited and they're going, maybe this is the finally the Messiah. All the rest have been false. They've been pretenders, but maybe this is the real one. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching us what his kingdom is like. And yet he surprises the crowd because what they wanted what they wanted, was something quite different. He first teaches them, first and foremost, and just about everything he says here, is that my kingdom is coming and my kingdom is not just simply looking to unleash you from the tyranny of Rome. That is not what I'm after. I'm after something far greater than to overthrow Rome. I'm after something more. I am after the the goal of eradicating evil in this whole world. Now, that's a much larger goal. I don't simply want to get you free from the taxation of Rome. No, I want to eradicate all evil. You see, they viewed God's kingdom, but the people of Israel wanted, even Jesus' disciples, what they first and foremost thought of Jesus was that he was the Messiah who would come to give them a new kingdom. But they thought of God's kingdom far too provincially. It was too small. And we tend to look at God's kingdom far too individually and superficially. You see, most of us come to God and we say, I don't know what your kingdom is, but I want to be a part of it. And I, I'm hoping as, you know, as a part of your kingdom that you, all we're thinking about is ourselves, that when I, you would know, fix my kids. That's why I'm coming to you, God. Fix my kids. Please just fix my kids. Somebody fix my kids or someone fix my marriage or, or get me out of this addiction that's in my life or fix my financial circumstances or, or fix the way I view myself. I have very poor self-esteem. Fix the way I view myself. And Jesus shows up and says, listen, I'm probably going to do that, but I'm going to do far more. I'm going to do far more. I'm going to fix you from the inside out but I'm also going to fix every square inch of this world. I'm going to eradicate evil and injustice and all that is horrible on this planet. And it's important to see that Jesus' interpretation of the fields is, what does he say? The field is what in this parable? Is the world. It's the world. The place in which God's kingdom plays The place where his kingdom is coming to bear to bring salvation is this world. Let your kingdom come. Where? In heaven? No, it's already there. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to notice this, that he connects the field to God's kingdom in verses 38 and verses 41. And in the Bible, God's kingdom always refers to God's reign and rule. Not necessarily to a literal realm, although it will become a literal physical realm, but it refers principally to God's divine power. The kingdom, in other words, is always, it's bigger than the church. It's bigger than the church. The church is part of God's kingdom, but God is doing something even larger, that as the church expands out and creates little kingdom outposts, that the whole world, all systems are changing. And what it means for God's kingdom to come is it means God's reign and rule comes to bear in that place in the world. Now do you see the point of why Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven? Do you see why the teaching of the kingdom of heaven should make us hopeful and expectant? He says, I'm going to bring into earth an invasion of the revolution of God, the power of God, so that the very heart of evil will be eradicated from this world." Jesus says, for a minute, stop thinking about the minuscule goals of your life and imagine with me, think about a great kingdom beyond simply I have less taxes to pay and think about the eradication of all injustice and all suffering and all sickness. Imagine a world without racial strife or loneliness. Imagine a world without guilt or unhappiness or mental illness or family breakdown. That's the world that I'm bringing. That's the kingdom that I'm bringing. You see, in the Bible, the kingdom of God is not just a realm, It's not just like the Kingdom of Sweden. The Kingdom of God is a system, a system that changes everything and makes everything right, and beautiful. And under his system of leadership, what's going to happen? He gives it to us in Revelation. We get, we get pictures of it. Now, we're all scared to read Revelation because it's freaky and crazy, and, but there's all these beautiful pictures within Revelation, such as the lion and the lamb will lie down to next to each other, and the child will be able to stick his hand into a, a poisonous snake's den, and nothing bad will happen, where the instruments of war, it says, will be beaten into to plowshares, which means agricultural instruments, in a place where the dry ravines will not just fill with water, but with Wine. Now that's a good kingdom. That's a really good kingdom. And you won't even get a headache. There will be no more crying <laughs> or pain. You are too familiar with that joke. That's not good. There will be no more crying or pain. There will be no more cancer or dementia or divorce or mental illness. No greed. No sex trafficking. The world will be as it finally is made to be. That's the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful moment. I said, I I don't, we all have weird feelings about the movie Passion of the Christ, and I feel kind of cliche even bringing it up. But in the movie, there's actually quite a few poignant moments there where it it appears that the maker of it may actually know what he's talking about. Jesus is walking in what's called the Via Dolorosa, in which he's carrying his cross. And it's a made-up scene of sorts, He's, under, he's, he's buckling and he collapses under the weight of the cross. And there actually is a scene like that in the Gospels. And Simon of Cyrene's sons have to pick up the cross. But in this scene, in the, in the Passion of the Christ, it's, it you know, takes some, some artistic liberties. And it, Jesus is there and he falls to the ground in a heap and he's bloodied and battered and his mother is there. And it shows a scene of his mother looking at him and suddenly it gives a spotlight of what she is thinking in that moment. As She's remembering Jesus as a little boy and it's a moment where she sees him fall and he skins his knees and he begins to cry. And then all of a sudden Mary... Snaps back to to the present moment. She stoops down next to Jesus and he looks up at her with this bludgeoned, bloodied, bruised face, his eyes swollen nearly shut, blood and dirt matted across his face and sweat pouring down and a small fi- smile creases across, across him and in the midst of hell on earth and horror he says to his mother in a whisper, don't you know I'm making all things new? That's the kingdom of God. That's how you live in the horror of this world with hope. That there is a kingdom, a king who has said, I have come to establish a kingdom in this world, and one day the end of the story will look like this, where there will be no more crying or pain or tears. And that makes all the difference to give you hope when? When you're in the middle of the story. When you're walking through the valley and the doctor says you have a spot on your lung, you still know the end of the story. When you go in for an ultrasound and suddenly the tech goes running out and the doc comes in and says, something doesn't look right here. You know the end of the story. When your boss says, we're going to have to let you go and you're wondering where food is going to come from and how ends are going to meet, you know how the story is going to end when a child says i hate you and i don't want you in my life anymore you know how the story ends when your child's in rehab for the third time and you've exhausted all of your financial resources and you're at the end of your rope and there you feel no more hope in for that child you can hope in the kingdom of god because you know the end of the story that's the kingdom of god that's what Jesus came to teach about, to cast a vision for. Is that the kingdom that you long for? Or is it something so trivial and individual and provincial? All right, so if you're going to deal with the brokenness of this world, you need to have the kingdom of the teaching on Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to hear more about that in coming weeks, give you hope. But also, we also have to let the teaching of the, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven in this parable Communicate to us that we need to look at the world with realism, with realism. So if the vision for the kingdom of God and for the king has come saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this leads to a very distressing question. If the king came and he established his kingdom, why is it so bad here still? I mean, all the things that I mentioned were not, a pro- were not just a problem 2,000 years ago. They're a problem today. But Jesus He's so brilliant, and what's clear is he's teaching about the nature of his kingdom in relation to the reality of this world because he actually addresses this in his parable. He puts a character in the parable who asks the question. Look at verse 27. There's bad seed, and what do they say? The, The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? I thought you made a good world. I thought you came and sowed the seeds of the kingdom. And then they asked, how then... Does the field, the world, have such weeds? If the the kingdom of God has come, why is the world still so evil? Why has there not been more radical change? Jesus explains in this parable that there are two realities that we need to come to terms with. Ed communicated at the beginning of the service so brilliantly as this. He said that he has come to establish, in, in order to inaugurate the kingdom of God. It is in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is as if God himself, his kingdom, has created a foothold in this world. But he has to finish the invasion. And that is what the rest of history is about, which means that we live in a world that God is saying, I will come and I will bring my kingdom to bear. And yet in the moment, we're still waiting for the kingdom's army to get here. You're still waiting. And so one of the most common questions you'll get is, if there is really a God, why is there so much crud in this world? There's a, well, here's the, what does Jesus answer? Listen, we're not going to get into the problem of evil this morning. In large part because no question, no answer I would give you would actually probably satisfy. The Bible gives us such very simplistic answers. God just kind of states it like it is. What does he say? Why is there evil in this world? Because there is an evil one who came and sowed evil. There is a kingdom of God, and what he's saying here is there's also there is a competing kingdom. Later in his own interpretation, Jesus makes clear who this enemy is, this enemy king who comes to sow his own kingdom in this world. The enemy who sows is the weeds, is the devil. Jesus tells us that there is a second power, a sinister double, a dark menace that is at work in the fields of Carrollton in this world. And it is not necessarily a flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says this, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you encounter evil and pain and hardship in this world, understand that that is the sign that there is a competing kingdom. That there is a competing kingdom. That there is one who, decides, who desires to destroy the world that God has made and to undermine the growth and the expansion of God's kingdom. And therefore, and Jesus is realistic about it, he says it's here. And therefore, what does that mean? If that's part of the reality of this present age, it's this, then we should not be surprised, we should not be shocked when there's suffering in this world. Don't be shocked by evil. Stalin killed 40 million of his own people. 40 million of his own people. Don't be shocked by the evil in your neighborhood. Don't be shocked by a broken world. Don't run around with your your hands on your head, pulling your hair out, going hell's bells. Everything is falling apart. God knew it. He knew this was going to happen. Now, the good news in Jesus' interpretation of the parable is that there will be a day when evil and unrighteousness, right, at the end of the parable in his interpretation, these things will be eradicated when the kingdom of evil is at once and for all put down. But until then, the expectation of anyone who seeks to live for God's kingdom and to see change in this world, you should expect opposition. This is why, despite the fact that Christians can throw themselves in all sorts of labor for the kingdom of God, they often, at various places, it seems like the kingdom of God is being pushed back. So by those who are in Africa, if you actually were to look at the geography of Africa and you would actually see, going from north to south, that there is a line that is moving and creeping further and further and further south of a radical jihadi Islam, despite the fact that standing in its way are Christians who are willing to say, "I'll die," in all of these places, because there is a competing kingdom, and therefore we should expect it. And you should take that into account when you try and seek to change the systems of this world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if we're going to get involved in the foster care and adoptive system, guess what you're going to face? Some deep injustices. Some serious problems. And we should expect that it's going to be there. We shouldn't wring our hands wondering why it's there. The problems and, the, and the, the things that are put up, the barriers to God's kingdom in this world are, it is not the sign that, you are, that we are doing the wrong thing. It's the sign that we are up against a mighty enemy and that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. Perhaps we have learned this. I'm not sure, in fact, I'm not sure too many how many of us expect that the world is really a terrible place. We, we know that the world is a terrible place. We understand it's under the influence of an evil dictator. But what derails many of us and what really seems to shock us is the second thing I want you to see here in this text, which is this, that the devil has a counter-kingdom, and he sows weeds, and that those weeds surround us, they come into our presence, and they look just like us. This is the second reality. The weeds look like wheat, Literally what is in the parable with the weed that is sown here is this weed that was the bane of the wheat farmer of the ancient Near East. It was called Zazania. I call it the ZZ Top Seeds. It's Zazania. Zazania was, was a degenerate form of wheat. It was an impoverished form of wheat. It looked like wheat as it grew up, and it grew in the fields right along with the good wheat. But it became, when it came to maturity, there was no grain at the heads of its stalks. Therefore, you didn't know as they were growing up whether it was a weed or wheat. It drove farmers crazy. And all of that, but its roots would get bound up with the good wheat down there underneath the ground so that if you pulled out one, you pulled out the other. And so what is Jesus saying here? That there is an enemy in the camp. That there's enemies in the camp. That the wheat will be surrounded in the closest proximity by weeds. Therefore... Don't be surprised, not just when there's evil and suffering out there. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when it's here. And by here, I mean the church. And by here, I mean King's Chapel. And by here, as the old proverbs say, if you want to see the devil, sometimes the quickest way to see him is to look in the pulpit. Man, have you ever heard someone say, I can't believe that someone in the church would really behave that way? Yet, if you've ever run up, you kind of want to go, Really? Are you new here? And half the time, that actually is the answer. They are new here. And this is actually the application I would make. Some of you are young Christians. You're new to the faith, and you join the church, and everything is great. And it's like, right, you're in the honeymoon phase. Everything is wonderful. And then suddenly, one day, somebody says something awful to you. And someone is terrible, and someone is political, and someone is backstabbing. And you go, wait a second. I thought this was God's church. I thought this was the kingdom. What happened here? We have to realize a very frightening fact. One of the ways in which the kingdom of God is most opposed in this world is that the evil one plants what were called wolves in sheep's clothing in the very midst of his people, of God's people. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15 says this, for such men are false prophets. He's speaking about false teachers. Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Some of you have actually heard God tell you to do things, or you thought it was God telling you to do things. He's very good at making you think that it's the Spirit of God talking to you. So it is in no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. It says Satan masquerades in the church as, a, as an angel of light. And if that's not surprising, then his servants masquerade as Servants of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. There are those, there are those in the church. Don't be shocked and and surprised. Be dismayed, yes. Weep and grieve that there are those in the church who would come here and pretend to be a certain way when they're not. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. All right, if you're gonna live in this world, you need to hear Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven so that you can live with hope and so you can live with realism. But third, we also see, if you wanna live rightly in this world's you got to see that his teaching calls us to live with forbearance, with forbearance. This is going to take some little bit of uh, ex, what we call exegetical gymnastics, a little bit of looking under the surface. In a parable, the servants of God ask the obvious question, okay, if there's, if there's false wheat, if there's these weeds amongst the field and the world, uh, should, 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 should we go ahead and go chop them out? Should we get rid of them? Should we judge them? Let's rid the evil of off the earth. Let's kick all the people out of the church. But here's what the parable takes the strangest turn, verse 29 and 30. But Jesus said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, now let both grow together. Now there's a negative and a positive aspect to what Jesus says here. The negative is this, don't pull up the weeds. Because in God's view, you may do more damage than good. In other words, and this has been been affirmed and confirmed throughout history over and over and over and over again, you may cause more evil to be done than the evil you seek to eradicate. That's what he's saying. So leave the judgment to God. That's the negative. The positive, it says, let them grow. Let them grow. Now the word, now that seems so innocuous, like, okay, let them grow. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together, okay, okay. Actually, underneath that, is, there's something rather profound being said there in the word let them. In the Greek word, it's the word ephemi. It has two primary meanings. One is the one we see here in this text, which means it represented in the parable, which is send away or let go or permit. But the second meaning of the word is to forgive. It's to forgive. In other words, what, I'm, what I want to communicate to you, the third thing is, and what I said there is fourth, forbearance, is that the negative and positive in the command of this parable to the servants, that's us, is, I think can be summarized by this, is that we must forbear. You must forbear. And you must prepare yourself to forbear with this world. Forbearance indicates what? It's not a word we use very often. It indicates patience. It indicates tolerance. It indicates even a sense of forgiveness that I'll forbear with you. Now, this has two implications that I want to draw out as we deal with the realities that we just talked about. First, there's an implication for how we view the church, for how we view the church. So many people say in relation in, in, in maybe why they're not necessarily a Christian or why they don't want to be a part of the church is what do they say? Well, the church is full of hypocrites. And so some respond, well, we've got to get rid of all the weeds. You know, if the church is full of hypocrites, get rid of them. Just get rid of all those hypocritical people in the church, and they want to, you know, I, I imagine these people coming to my office, and they kind of say this kind of thing, and they say, we've got to crack down on all the hypocrites here, all the sinners in this church. And what I want to say is, listen, I agree with you. Why don't you start out by leaving? <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and get the ball rolling? Because oddly enough, by being the person who's calling everybody else a hypocrite, you are a Hypocrites, unless you are perfect. Jesus anticipates this, though. he is not shocked by the fact that there's going to be hypocrites in the church. You seem to be so shocked by it. Jesus is not. Jesus knew the church would be full of hypocrites. James 1 said that there will be those who, among us who look in the mirror but never see. Jesus is saying that, yes, I know that the church will be full of hypocrites, but that doesn't dismantle the truth of my gospel. It is trendy to be down on the church these days. It's trendy to say, I just don't like the church, or I haven't found the right place for me, or to those who are down on the church, we need to point them to Matthew 13 and say, you know, Jesus says the church is going to be a mess. He kind of preempted you on this. He forewarned you that we are a mess and we will be a mess. He knows it will be a confused mixture of sincerity and hypocrisy. And you know what I have to do week in and week out I have to get up here, and I have to tell you what the Bible says about how you should live, knowing full well that on 99.9% of them, I don't do it all. It is the height of hypocrisy, which is why often the devil resides so often in pulpits. But this is why Jesus calls us to bear with one another. In other words, patiently put up with one another. That's what he's saying. Paul talks about this. Bear with one another. In other words, put up with each other's not just their halitosis, but the halitosis of their sinful life. The fact that we stink, that we are a mess, that we are an unlovely people, which oddly enough is exactly why Jesus wants you to stay here, because it is here that we can learn to learn to love unlovely people. And maybe in that you'll learn to love your unlovely self. Besides, when you hear your heart fussing about the stupid church, perhaps you should listen more carefully to the voice of Jesus who says, you think you have problems with the church? I died for it to make it spotless and blemishless, and yet I have to continue to suffer it. I died to to wash the church, and yet it stains itself and stains my name every day, and yet I will not forsake it. How dare you forsake it? How dare you forsake it? And this is a reminder, let me just say this, because the church is such a mess, then if you're a mess, then this is the safest place for you to be in Carrollton. And any church that says otherwise is not worth your salt. In order to be a member of this church, the first thing you have to do is you have to stand up in front of 300 people and you have to say, I am a sinner and I am deserving of hell. And it's the only thing. That acknowledgement is the only thing. That's the only requirement for joining here. You to say that and that I am saved only by Christ. So that's one implication. The second implication is this. In our call to forbearance, is there an implication for how we interact with the world? And being called to forbear, we are assuming we are assuming an evil, we are assuming a wrong that must be born under, right? So we are not saying that we just ignore the evil in the world. We are acknowledging that there is something wrong for which we have to forbear, but we are leaving both the judgment to the Lord and the timing of such judgment to the Lord's. Christians perennially have longed for the pre- premature destruction of evil. Jesus' idea of letting good and evil coexist side by side, even at times seemingly intertwined until his final judgment, doesn't sit well with our desire for God's justice and to take God's justice into our own hands and execute it on the, all those sinners around us. And so there is, an aspect, there is an aspect to our longing for justice that is right and natural and that is good, but we must also see that in this parable is outlined the plan of the gospel to bring repentance and change to the evil place of this world is born forth through the patience and the long suffering and the kindness of gods and that in forbearing with the wickedness and horrors of this world we are joining god and his means of calling this world to repentance out of its evil in fact paul says this in romans chapter 2 he's actually challenging those who are evil and he, But Al he, he gives us an insight that this is exactly what God is doing. He says this, do you presume on the riches of, the, of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? So you face an evil world. An evil world where people do evil things. And our response is far too often to pick up, the poster boards, and get in the picket lines, and to chant, and to chant, and to chant. Now listen, listen, like I said at the beginning, right? Forbearance involves inherently that you call evil, evil. That's not what I'm saying. So I'm saying we call abortion evil. We call civil civil injustice evil. We call sex trafficking evil. We call it what it is. But the means of putting an end to this evil is the kindness of God's. And we are to join him in that. So when we look around the world, when we look at our society, when we look at our church, when we see the things that are clearly weedy in this world we, and are clearly wrong, we observe the field in which we live and we say, that should not be. And then we say, come to the God who is kind to you, who loves you, who is forbearing, who has forborne with you in this broken society and broken world and broken country for hundreds and hundreds of years. God is so patient with us. We traded we traded slavery for Jim Crow, and we traded Jim Crow for abortion, and yet God is still patient with us. And people are going, "Yeah, it's because of abortion that God is is now after us." I'm sorry. For three or four hundred years, He's been rather patient with us. He could have scourged us hundreds of years ago, and yet He hasn't. He's been forbearing with us. Well, to, to, how, how do we do this to end? How do we do this? How do you forbear? Well, first, let me just say this: the first two points would get you a long way. An understanding of reality and understanding of the gods of God's coming kingdom. God is that you can look at the realities of this world and you don't have to be surprised by them. Okay, I don't have to pull my hair out. This world is broken and it's fallen. I don't have to be surprised by evil anymore. And the second first point was this, that there's a day coming, and this is how Jesus ends the parable and his interpretation of it, when all this stuff will be gone, when God will actually bring his judgment to bear. That doesn't have to be my job. I can forbear for today because one day the church will be pure and lovely, and this world will be just as it was created to be. But let me also say this as a final word. How do you forbear? You remember God's forbearance with you. Jesus is telling these parables, and he's explaining them to his disciples. And did his disciples get it quickly? You know, it's always, so, it's always amazing, like, the turn that so often people will go. They'll go from, like, the prodigal and the reverber who's just living for himself. And then suddenly they become a believer, and they enter the church. And suddenly they're looking at the world, and they're going, why don't they get it? When they just got it Yesterday. And this is Jesus' disciples, and in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a place where Jesus' followers are coming along, and they come to a place in, in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is entering and going through various towns and cities, and there's a group of so, a Samaritan village where they don't believe in Jesus, and what, James and John come to Jesus, and they go, these people don't get it, Jesus, I don't understand why they don't get it. These people have rejected you, Jesus, and what's, what do they say then? Let's call the fires of hell down on them. Literally, that's what they ask for. Well, here's what you have to Remember? But you you didn't get it. You didn't get it either. And so when you look around the world and you see the evil of all those people who don't get it, and you look around the church and you see all the people in the church who just don't get it yet, listen, you will not respond with forbearance and patience until you understand this fact, that when you didn't get it, it, God should have thrown fires of hell down upon you, and yet he didn't do it, did he? Jesus came, I came in order to ransom you, to show you the kindness of my affection. There will be a day where I'll come in judgment that my first coming, I have come in order to take the fires of hell on your behalf. It's It's only when you have understood this that you stood in the place where God should have poured his fires down upon you, but he didn't. That Jesus didn't come to rid the world of evil men and women. Instead, he came to die first at their hands and then eradicate their evil as they see the goodness of his love. He didn't come to have the fire of judgment brought down on them, but he had the fire of judgment come down upon who? Himself. Himself. And therefore, the parable of the weeds is a parable of hopeful realism for those of us who will hear. Do you have ears? Let's pray. Oh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I, um, these prophetic passages, they're not um, easy to receive. But Lord, I, I pray that y- you would give us a healthy dose of the reality in our lives. Lord, perhaps many of us got the healthy doses. we looked at the parable of the sower last week and we sat in our community groups and we talked about our lives and we said, oh my, reality in my life means that there is a lot of indwelling sin. And Lord, are that same reality in the church and the realities for those who sit in the pew around us that we are sinners desperately in need of you. So, Gracious Heavenly Father, convince us of that truth over and over and over again so that we might be the people who live rightly in this world embracing both the hope of the coming kingdom and the beauty of the gospel message that looks at sinners and says... God's judgment has been poured out on Christ on your behalf. He is patient and kind. Would you come to him? Lord, may we hold these things in tension and reality. And Lord, in the meantime, Lord, as we face the suffering day in and day out and the evil of this world, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would keep us. Keep us. Protect us. May we not run from you. May we not fall away in our discouragement. But may we look to you and your coming kingdom with great hope. And Jesus said, we pray. Amen.